Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. China, 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 you take China. 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 I love them. China. 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 I have to have my China. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Now, when Donald Trump was president, he was worried about how many goods America bought from China. And he vowed to cut back on their reliance on China by introducing tariffs on goods bought from China. And there were some pretty hefty tariffs on China. But now it's not just China he has his sights set on. He's proposing a 10% tariff not just on China, but on everybody else. Any imports into America, whether they come from China or not, can he take on the rest of the world as well as China, 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 China. We'll look at Trump's idea for a universal 10% tariff on all imports into America this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So if he becomes president, Donald Trump is proposing a 10% flat tax on all foreign imports into the U.S., as a ring around the collar of the U.S. economy, he's describing. I'm not quite sure about the significance of that term, ring around the collar. I thought if you had a ring around the collar, you needed a stronger detergent. But um, it's, perhaps, it might even be a rope around the neck is another way of looking at it. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> well, he said he likes this phrase. He stuck with it. Uh, this is the quote he gave on Fox Business. He says, I think we should have a ring around the collar of the U.S. economy. When companies come in and they dump their products into the United States, they should pay automatically, let's say, a 10% tax. I do like the 10% for everybody, is what he said. And um, yeah, but and on other news, he's back on Twitter, by the way. Uh, now he's out of jail. He's paid the parole fee uh, and he's lost a bit of weight. He only weighs 98 kilos now. Actually, he looks, for a man who's six foot three, he looks more than 98 kilos, doesn't he? I wonder what his secret is. Does he say he's 98 or did he actually That was the official way, the, the pre-trial weigh-in, um, you know, when they stand Holy on the scales. Shit. Yeah, he puts on his little posing pouch and they um, uh, and they weigh him, just like a heavyweight championship. Are you sure he wasn't wearing helium shoes? <laughs> I don't know. 98 seems a bit I mean, light on I mean, looking. Yeah. He d- Bloody, I'm I'm 5'8", I'm and I, I, these days I've gained, I used to be 55 kilos in my super fit days. And, um, you know, back in marathon running and weightlifting and all that sort of jazz mm. in my youth. Uh, but I'm, I'm 85 now. Thought that I'm within less than 20 kilos lighter than bloody Donald Trump. And he's what stands, he's six foot one, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, six foot three. Yeah, I you, know. You've, 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 You've ruined my weekend. I don't know how he's done. So all I can say is there must not be an ounce of muscle uh, in in that six foot. That's about... That 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 that's that's a compensating factor. I make sure I'll go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to sign up to end up being hungry. But uh, yeah, back back to the yeah. I'd rather lift the weights than weigh yeah. them. But yeah. uh, it's ninety eight kilos. Yeah. I know. Okay. I thought one hundred and twenty. Yeah, I thought something like that as well. So mm-hmm. that is a surprise. But anyway, that, we're not here to you talk. Sure there was, you sure he's not wearing a ten percent collar that's <laughs> I don't lifting know. him up a but bit? But this is the bizarre mm-hmm. thing. Why mm-hmm. is he going on about a ring a, a ring around the collar? A ring around the collar is that ring that you get when you've you know because you're 
your neck's dirty and you're wearing white shirts and you haven't put enough detergent on. How has that got to do with? Look, I, I think it's I think it's I think it's potentially a kafefi. A what? You've forgotten, have you? <laughs> What's a kafefi? Is you that a place in nobody Wales? Knows. You, you've forgotten. You've forgotten, mate. He put out a tweet somewhere. Oh, obviously course. had a typo yeah, yeah. in it. C O V F E F E. I think it was. Yeah. And then rather than saying sorry, a typo, he defended it as if it was some sort of in, 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 in interesting. Yeah, well, concept. that's it. You can so, never yeah. be wrong. Anyway, look. So this is, but the idea. Okay, maybe a, a kafefi could be a collar. <laughs> it could be. Maybe a ring around the. Ca- a ring yeah. around the kafefi of the, the US kafefi. economy. Okay, so look, this there, has yeah. been viewed by many people as a really bad idea, and I, I know how you you are a bit of a supporter in tariffs in places, and you, in the past you've pointed to how Japan protected its car industry in the early days by imposing tariffs. So if you impose tariffs on some some imports then, you know, you can help an industry grow to a point where you can start to compete in in the international marketplace. But, of course, at that stage, you've got to make sure you've got uh, free trade. And most free trade agreements have sectors that are protected in some ways. So, I mean, the idea of tariffs obviously is nothing new. Just look at the EU, for example. But 10% across the board, do you see that as a good idea? Well, I don't think it's a bad idea. Let's start there. I mean, if, if, if you talk to any conventional neoclassical economist, they'd be screaming straight away, just putting up costs for consumers. It'll it'll reduce efficiency. Uh, we're better off to specialise on what our comparative advantages and all that all that uh, mainstream nonsense. Um, but when you look at the uh, empirical data on what actually uh, was happening with various countries when they went through the industrialised takeoff, virtually all of them had f- strong protection of domestic industries with the intention of encouraging local manufacturers to develop where they didn't exist previously. And uh, the the, the best economist on that in terms of doing the empirical work these days is Danny Roddick. I've I've got R-O-D-R-I-K, I I think is how you spell his last name. So Danny's looked at the situation of Korea, uh, um, South Korea, obviously, um, uh, Germany, uh, quite a few late industrialising countries and said they all had a a period where they were protecting their industries in general uh, and basically forcing local manufacturers to come about and giving them a protected market while they were doing it, but also putting them under enormous pressure to become internationally competitive. Right. So history tells us that that works for emerging industries. But when you have an industry that's already there, already in place. So, for example, you know, we've had, obviously, he's put in massive tariffs. He imposed tariffs of up to 25% on $34 billion worth of imports from China in mid-2018. That kicked off a bit of a trade war. And we can talk about the consequences of the sort of tit-for-tat measures that go with this. But those, you know, the idea was to re-industrialize America. Here we are. Uh, we're not seeing that reindustrialization happening. All we are seeing is, as the neoclassic economists would argue, we are seeing consumer prices going up because people are having to pay more. It's not being replaced by domestic industry. Perhaps the economics of it don't work out. Uh, maybe just oh, it oh, just no, takes no, too no, long. No, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe it's a time frame thing. I think it's a, it's a question of time rather than um, uh, whether it works or doesn't work. I mean, I'm, there's no guarantee it'll work because, I think, as I said, it has to be married to policies that say you want to promote domestic manufacturing and pr- promote reinvestment in your local economy. And there's no guarantee that Trump would you know, include, as, as well as the the, uh, the, the kafefi around the neck, uh, that he'd also include the policies to put pressure on 
the manufacturers to industrialize. But um, I mean, I'm, I th- you know, this, let's just get this on the on the card straight away. I regard the argument of comparative advantage as complete nonsense. Um, uh, it, it's an idea by Ricardo that he used to argue for a reduction in the uh, tariffs around England affecting what they then called corn. I think we'd call right. it wheat that, these days. But in, his, in Ricardo's defense, I mean, that might be more appropriate in an age where you're talking agriculture because there's some products that just can't be grown in certain climates. So it would it would apply in that case. There's no point. Oh, like, I, th- I, think, I think his basic case was about... No point in trying to grow bananas in the UK, yeah. for example. I, I think the bananas in the UK are manufactured by the House of Parliament, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I mean, when you go back and look at what Ricardo was talking about, he was talking about the importation of what he called corn, which I think we these days call wheat. Uh, and he said by having the tariffs and the the, the corn laws that kept out um, production wheat production on the continent from England, said the only impact of that was to make wages more expensive because you, you had to provide at least a subsistence wage for your workers. The subsistence wage largely came down to corn. Um, so if you cut the price of corn, you'd drop the wages and you'd also drop the rents. And what would then happen is that the income, which is currently going to landlords predominantly, uh, would end up going to capitalists instead who would invest more and therefore England would grow more quickly. So that was Ricardo's logic, which I think in some ways is impeccable. What he saw going on was an income redistribution from landlords to capitalists and said landlords just waste their time buying carriages. That was the, the, the you know, the carriages were the um, equivalent of buying your Tesla motor cars this, and your Lamborghinis mm. today. He said, if you give it to capitalists instead, they'll invest and England will grow more rapidly. And that was, you know, I think in some ways it was an impeccable case. But it was then adopted by neoclassicals in the typical brain dead way they they do these things. And they talked in terms of uh, making international prices reflect consumer demand globally uh, so that you would have. the, the, the consumer dam would not be affected by government regulations getting in the way. And what you'd have, you'd have a reallocation of labour and capital from industries which were protected to industries which were not protected, and you would therefore get uh, growth coming out of that. And I, I sent that up in my little book, Econ Comics, which is a cartoon book. Um, <laughs> I think economic neoclassical economics deserves cartoons. Um and made the point that you, Ricardo's example had, had production of corn and, uh, sorry, of wine and cloth in England and Portugal, respectively, with Portugal more able to use less labor to produce the same amount of output as England in both industries, but more or less, so to speak, in wine than in cloth. And therefore, what should happen is England specializes just in, in cloth. Portugal specializes just in wine. There's more physically produced of both. And you trade the surplus in both countries' benefit. That was his little right. game. And so- the point that I make in the, my little satire is that uh, it's easy enough to imagine moving labor from one industry to another. But it's rather hard to turn a wine press into a spinning jenny. Yeah. In other words, the yeah. capital can't be moved. And this is the nonsense part of the neoclassical theory, but which also is one the reason la- why their arguments don't make sense. Also on the labour side, when you've got a, a large country uh, with a billion mm-hmm. people or so who will work for a lot less, then they're going to beat your hands down on, on just about everything. And that's and that's what fundamentally happened when you had uh, when you did the free trade era. And this is what China took very deliberate advantage of. I, I was very lucky to uh, uh, one, one of my stunts in my youth was to take on behalf of the Australia-China Council, a group of Australian journalists, China, 
to have the first ever meeting that Chinese journalists ever had with journalists from another country. And we spent about a, a week or so in in Beijing looking at uh, you know, agriculture as one industry, manufacturing, uh, culture, et cetera, et cetera, between, between the two countries. And then we went for a tour, and part of the tour, we, we were taken down to see the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone. And as it happens, that was when the, this is the, the, the free trade zone just north of Hong Kong. And this was literally when it was being built. And in fact, CSR, the Australian company CSR, was laying the concrete for it. And we had a wonderful barbecue with the, the manager and his wife um, uh, at, at this free trade zone. Then we met the managers of the free trade zone. And that was the most the most remarkable and to me impressive meeting we had in the whole time we were in China because they explained what they were doing was uh, encouraging American capitalists to relocate from America to China and they had a condition and the condition was that they had to have a Chinese partner yeah. and within five years the Chinese partner had to own half the business now under what circumstances do American capitalists give up half the ownership of something? Yeah. Okay? But it's when they're making a killing on the other side. So they were went from paying American workers, you know, just in terms of today's dollars, fifteen dollars an hour to paying Chinese workers fifteen dollars a month. So or a week, whatever right. it was. At so, the time. so Guver- and that was the real advantage. Right, okay. But to try and uh, get rid of that advantage by uh, by making it more expensive to operate in China by pushing up tariffs. And as I say, 25% has been imposed on $34 billion worth of imports from China. That was back in mm. 2018, and it did kick off a bit of a trade war. But you make the point that, well, maybe it needs more time. But, I mean, is it is 25% enough, actually? So then you do get into the argument that, I mean, it depends on what you're producing as well. So the question about ten percent on everything is well on some things you know twenty five percent is 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 not working or perhaps needs to be more. If the advantage is so much greater in China and you're imposing a tariff, I mean you've got to get to a stage where you're putting up the price so much that the domestic industry can can kick in, and that might be a huge that might be a huge amount. And in the meantime, it is inflationary in prices for whatever it is that you're importing. It, it it could have, it would have been a huge amount forty years ago. That's when I was in China. Um, I you know I think eighty one eighty two. I don't think it is anymore. I mean I've done a number of trips to China and spent some time in uh, in the second and third tier cities there. Uh, Dayang in particular, outside Shenzhen, uh, outside Sichuan's capital, and the standard of living that the Chinese populace in general. Uh, if I had a choice we're living in an American city sure. so, China, yeah, okay well that all that means then that it's not China it moves to the next place that produces cheap labor which of that's course, then that then and Vietnam and so on and then India and right. so on which yeah. then would mean okay well, we don't want tariffs on China we want tariffs on on everybody which is which is Donald Trump's argument but again is 10 percent on everybody is that going to be enough and then what about the things that you, you you can't produce America can't produce everything that it consumes well maybe he thinks they can. Uh, it's got a long way to go, oh, though. Well, America's pretty much, I mean, this is one reason I use America for most of my statistics, apart from being, is because it is the world's largest uh, economy, and, and it is a continental, uh, you know, 
countries, mm. not a, in, not Japan yeah. in scale. So theoretically, it could uh, be self. It can produce. It, it produces. It's, it's one of the world's major food exporters. You know who the number mm. two food exporter is in the world, by the way? It's a, what? Uh, no. I, it's the short answer to that. You're not going to say Ukraine, are okay. you? <laughs> no, the Netherlands. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which we've spoken about because of their greenhouses. But uh, that's I think, right. I think okay. that's coming so back. The cost of energy associated with those things is quite horrendous, though, isn't it? That That's going to be an issue for them because a large part of them are fueled by They've actually generated generate CO2 internally, and then this is one time that the climate nut jobs, I mean, yeah. by which I mean the deniers, of course, have got a point. If you regulate the carbon dioxide properly and keep the warmth at the right level, then you can generate more yeah. food. You've got to be a bit careful as well so, with some of those numbers for uh, for the Netherlands, because they, are, they also are the port that feeds a lot of uh, produce into the UK as well. So there may be quite a bit of import and export going on there as well. But anyway... Um, it's, America is capable of producing virtually everything it needs on its own. It's a, it's a huge economy, and it's been deindustrialized in the last 40 years. The impact of, mm. uh, of, of cutting tariffs, of free trade, basically meant American capitalists, who, of course, are very, very have great care and sympathy for their own workers, I don't think, uh, were very happily relocating production from America to China, and that's where the Rust Belt came from. So what Trump is seeing, and that's why Trump, this actually might be successful. But can Trump. you de The question is, can you de-rust for old industries uh, with a tariff of just 10%? Shouldn't, isn't, it, isn't the better focus to say, well, what are the new industries? And yes, maybe we'll introduce some protection to help those industries to grow, which of course, you know, Biden is doing uh, by saying, well, okay, we need to uh, be a bit heavy with the with China when it comes to artificial intelligence in these emerging industries. There are, you know, and there are, you know, I'm not going to go a, a total pro tariff argument here, but yeah, there are obviously other. You know, ten percent might not, well not, not be enough. But one thing which has happened, uh, and certainly COVID ran this home fairly dramatically, is that when you try uh, outsourcing production in that sense, as American capitalists did back in the 80s, it looks like they're going to be huge cost savings. But what you get is an enormously complicated supply chain. And then the fragility of that supply chain uh, can can mean your and the complexity of it as well can mean you get costs you weren't counting on. So rather than having high wage costs, you have, you have high interconnection costs. And I remember meeting a... Um, engineer uh, at a, in an American airport one day, and he, he was heading off to China because they, he manufactured, his firm manufactured a, a machine that made RFID chips, the radio frequency chips that let you, you know, locate and track this movement. And the machine was designed to have, I think it was something like nine workers and produce 16 million units per year and the chinas were using 14 workers and producing 8 million units per year <laughs> pardon me and his task was to go and find what the hell's going wrong over there so those management issues don't happen when you have everything internalized and one thing we're yeah. seeing in terms of the competitiveness of tesla these days is that tesla tries to produce virtually everything internally and it doesn't have the Markup after markup after markup through a supply chain. Right. So there's an argument he's done that, and that's been a success without tariffs. So there's a there's an argument to say, well, okay, if you're a smart company, you'll you will do stuff locally. And we've all learned, haven't we, through COVID, that supply long supply chains uh, are not a reward. And there's the question about you know how much we are decoupling from China, how much of the slowdown that we're seeing in China is because the West is buying less from them. So it, you know maybe this issue is sort of re- resolving itself uh, and. 10% just perhaps is just a drop in the ocean. But perhaps, on that, yeah. I mean, there were, there were perhaps, but there will still be things as well that you 
that you buy that just can't be made in America uh, because they're made better overseas or because they have a, uh, a an association with a particular place like Scotch whiskey from Scotland, for example, because you want to get the genuine mm. stuff. Uh, it, it, all you're going to do there is push it up by 10%. And yeah. then that would apply for, you know, maybe half of what you buy. So it's half of what you buy. And if everything was the same price, then that means prices automatically have gone up 5% in, in America as well, a result of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the most obvious um, product that fits in that category is again, something else also made in the Netherlands. And that's the machine that makes chips. I, I see chips. So mm. one, I think it's, I, it's something like a, a set of initials, ADSL, I don't think that's correct, but some set of initials like that uh, is the, the country that make the company single company that makes the only machines that make uh, you know very very high very very you know, micron level um right. semiconductors so if you pay 10 percent more if you pay 10 percent more on that you wouldn't care because that's a capex investment that is going to generate money many times over domestically so an import tariff on that uh, negligible isn't it it's those consumer goods that is the real issue yeah yeah uh, but it's it is it is a complex problem anyway. But yeah, America, mm. generally speaking, America makes most of what it needs. But it's actually trying to generate its own local chip manufacturing. So a, a huge part of American industry relies upon uh, chips that are made in Taiwan using machine that's made in the Netherlands. And uh, and there's only a handful of companies involved in the entire chain. And because America's deindustrialized so much over the last forty years, courtesy of American corporations outsourcing and globalizing their production to chase cheap wages, you don't have the same skill set back in America to support those industries, except in various isolated examples like like Tesla. So you know, I, even though uh, you know, Trump might not have his the, the right number or the the right um, uh, backup or, or too broad to too yeah. bro- i mean my my issue is is it too broad so let's take chips as an example because you know a, a large part of the exports from china to the us historically have been electrical and electronic equipment uh but we've seen uh domestically within a, in america uh, a record output from nvidia in the United States. So they've wow. just announced a, a massive quarterly profit and they've upped their forecasts for the next quarter because of all this interest in, uh, well, they say AI. Interestingly, it's not CPUs that they are selling lots of. It's GPUs, which is, you know, used by gamers. So I wonder whether it's AI or the exact opposite of intelligence. And that's, no, and that's it, it, it is AI. It is AI. <laughs> it is AI because a large part of AI is... Uh, Using what are called, uh, generally speaking, deep neural networks, yeah. uh, you know, which are basically matrix operations, uh, and so the matrix operations you want a distributed processor, and that's where the GPU comes in because there are hundreds of thousands of cores, quite possibly. I haven't kept up with the technology. Uh, whereas you've only got about eight or nine cores inside, or sixteen cores inside a CPU, you can have hundreds inside a GPU, and you then do the operations in parallel. Uh, using matrix matrix mathematics, so that's why Nvidia has just made an absolute bomb. Well, as we've had this huge increase in um, in um, artificial intelligence. So here's, but it's a race, isn't it, as to who uh, you know who can who can embrace the technology more, who can get more of the uh, processing capability. So Nvidia, it's even though they are you know producing and selling lots of chips, those chips are still made not in China but in Taiwan, most of them. Uh, from Taiwan mm. Semiconductor Manufacturing Company Limited, actually is almost exclusively where NVIDIA gets its chips from. So mm. this tariff would make those chips 10% more expensive, 
So, you know, Donald Trump will be hoping that uh, NVIDIA would say, well, okay, let's stop making them in Taiwan. Let's make them domestically. Question number one, are they going to save 10% by doing that? Or is the magnitude greater? In which case, do you need a more specific tariff to make that work? But secondly, by pushing the price up, are you making all the other components of that industry slower to grow because you are adding the cost which is getting added onto the final price which might slow down demand or there may be you know other solutions which are made in 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 other parts of the world which help other economies grow faster so it is a complex game and again it's 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 if it's so broad and you know not targeted and in some you know and, and just a flat fee it's easy but does it do any good well, we actually look at a bit of history here. And on this one, I'm going to recommend uh, a book by my great mate, Michael Hudson, America's Protectionist Takeoff, which was actually his PhD thesis, I think. Mm. And he went through the role of protection in encouraging the development of uh, of American industry. And it was, I think it was something of the, that nature. It wasn't, you know, a specific industries targeted, but a, a, a generic uh, level of tariffs to basically say, if you want iron, iron and steel, I think actually it was back in the days of only iron, uh, then you're going to have to, um, you know, you and you capitalists in America are going to have to make your own corporations that do it. And what's really going on here is you're encouraging investment. The, the big con job in neoclassical theory is to talk about specialization, which means reallocation of resources. And the thing is, that's not what gives you growth. What gives you growth is in, 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 in you know, new industries is investment putting capital into building new machinery, developing new technologies, and it's encouraging investment that matters far more than specialization, which is just another neoclassical myth. But a company, companies would say, well, we do invest. We just don't invest all the way down sort of the vertical stack from manufacturing right up to a finished product and post-sales and all the other stuff that you require to run a business. Then, you know, a business might say, yeah, well, our expertise is in – uh, is in the software. We've got to ha- we've got to have chap- chips. We don't want to make chips because that's just too involved a process, and we can get them cheap from Taiwan anyway. So why would we bother? Because where we're making our markup, where we're making our margin, is more is higher up in that stack. It's you know it's developing yeah. w- what's actually providing the added value. You don't you know chips useless on its own. It's what you use it for where the value comes from. And oh yeah, a bit yeah, but uh, uh, yeah. There is certainly a lot of realism to that because, you know, why is just one company, not not one country, but one company, mm. the specialist in making chips that have that degree of, of focal uh, capacity to focus light? I, I think the, the process actually involves um, blasting a, a, a small amount of tin uh, with a high-powered laser, generating light out of that, and then focusing the light through a series of incredibly... Uh, uh, well-designed, I think, Zeiss, uh, Carl Zeiss lenses to focus the light down to the stage where it can etch the rose in, in silicon uh, in you know, at the level of a micron uh, of, of focal power, and only one company has managed to do it. So um, it, it, is, it is a huge challenge to try to get those sorts of industries to move um, and, and to beat the 
the, the you know the advantage that company has is so great that it's the sole manufacturer of those machines on the planet. So yeah, it's not easy. All right. Well, does it have to be tariffs? Is there a way that it could be done through taxation or by blocking the level of, of imports? Which is the most effective way? And and how do you cope with uh, retaliation? Which is almost well, we know uh, the evidence from China that is the, the what happens when you start to introduce measures like that. We'll look at all of that in just a second when we come back. It's the debunking economics podcast. Me and Steve. Stay with us. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we are looking at this idea, which some people are saying is crazy. Steve Keen's going, well, you know, it's not a bad idea. The idea from Donald Trump, who is crazy, by the way, but does come out with the odd good idea. Uh, should there be a flat 10% tax on all imports into the United States? Would it do more good than harm or more harm than good or my view is would it actually really probably not make much difference but maybe create a lot of angst in the process i mean that's the danger isn't it steve by the way Mm. we should point out where are you talking to us from at the moment budapest and you're there for a few months just for just to people people to keep up so you're working for what the hungarian government the hungarian university the hungarian central bank Mm, not this, it, it's, 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 a spe, it's a specialist research centre established by the central bank and a number of universities over here, and it's called the Budapest Centre for Long-Term Sustainability. And uh, it's invited a, a number of non-Orthodox scholars, of whom I'm the most recent. Richard Werner was there. In fact, I bumped into Richard yesterday. He don't, he's left. He's now working for another group in Hungary. But, uh, yeah, they're trying to up their skill level in terms of heterodox economics. And the central bank here uh, is... is relatively a critic of neoclassical economics and wants to develop uh, non-orthodox approaches to economic modelling. Right. Hasn't stopped them whacking their interest rates up, though, to try and uh, counter their inflation, has it? So they're following the yeah, they're following the textbook on that. But anyway, let's get back to talking about uh, Donald Trump and his 10% tariff. So, I mean, you're right. You, t- you talked about the age in the United States when they did have great protectionism. So from 1867 until 1913, I don't think they had income tax. They had an import tax. So they had import duties, and they accounted for about half of all the revenue that was received by the federal government. Presumably, the rest came from state governments. So that's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? You are imposing tax. I mean, the government is raking in the benefit. You are choosing potentially which products are taxed. In this case, it's imported products. I mean, there is some elegance to that approach, I guess, you know, assuming those countries don't respond with countermeasures, which, of course, they will. But this idea that our tax is actually going to be a consumption tax based on goods that come into the country rather than those that are made here. And that, you you know, that was the way America was in the late 1800s. 
Yeah, but that also reflects the scale of government back in those days. This is something you can actually find the data for this on the Winehouse website and go back and take a look at the level of government receipts as a percentage of GDP. And for the vast majority of the 1800s, uh, those receipts were less than 5% of GDP, meaning the government scale was less than 5% of GDP. Now it runs at about 30%. So it reflects the, the, the history of the times. Uh, and this is all before the Great Depression and the Second World War. That's when there's a great dramatic increase in government spending. And that's when, when income tax was brought in as well. So maybe that's Donald Trump is looking back at those halcyon days of small government and saying, well, OK, this is how we're going to make money for the government through, through import tariffs. But the problem is you will get retaliation. And that is the Achilles heel in his argument, isn't it? Except that if that retaliation means that other countries invest in the same industries, um, then what you've got is a focus on investment rather than a focus on uh, redistributing existing resources. And that's the important point. This is what neoclassical is obscure, and it's one reason I want them to be kicked out of the universities because they're just, they're just, their ideas are nonsense. I mean, obviously, my thought about climate change is a major factor there, but in general, their ideas are nonsense. And if you take a look at the definition of economics, which they, they'll spout in their textbooks, that economics is the study, is the science that studies the allocation of scarce resources between uh, uh, between unlimited wants. But what they'd leave out is that uh, what, what Robbins included in his definition, scarce resources that have alternative u- alternative uses. In other words, you've got to be able to have a machine which you can move from one sector where it's less efficient to another where it's more efficient. And that is things like nails and hammers and and uh, and, and generic capital goods like that. You can't move an, uh, you can't move a, a blast furnace across to another industry. You can't move a chip making machine across to another industry. So this alternative right. use is nonsense. That's, that's where a large part of their stupid ideas come from. Right, but I mean, you could, but you, special, but you, but you could argue capital investment, though, ignoring you know how you know the machines which obviously need to be chucked away if they're of no use. But you need to make new machines. But the capital investment long term is going to go to those machines which are going to be most uh, most productive for, for you. But and there will be a case, won't there, where you know you could spend you could because you're talking you know about resource allocation and getting the most efficient allocation of resources. You could say, well, okay, uh, we don't want to buy in bananas. Go back to bananas in the UK because you're not hoping hell of growing bananas in this climate. Uh, so you yeah, could, except for except for the ones in Parliament. Yeah, except for the ones in Parliament. And perhaps with climate change, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe it will become the uh, the hub for banana plantations in the not too distant future. Right. But for, in the meantime, so you could say, well, okay, we, we we're we're not going to import bananas. We are going to uh, we're going to harvest bananas here, and we're going to have massive greenhouses, which are going to cost a, a fortune to heat, a la the, the Netherlands, and we'll produce our own. And that is going to be a complete waste of uh, resources because you can. They'll grow naturally in another part of the world. So in that instance, isn't the idea of, you know, the comparative advantage, doesn't it make sense when you're looking at something like that? Well, when, it, when it's stuff that you, know, you simply can't produce domestically, and that's not what comparative advantage is about. It's about stuff where you can produce domestically, but it's Beaches better done at another. Yeah. 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 So, you, you know, when you, have, when you have unique products and products that simply aren't possible, then, of course, you've got to import them. And, of course, because if they're, you know, in that case, you want to get the lowest prices you can on them. So that is an area where 
you know, the uh, tariffs are, are useless. But generically, we're talking about uh, the, the idea of tariffs being imposed so that industry which can be produced in one location will instead be produced in, a, in, a, in more in, a, in another location. And when you, and this is why it, it, I want to get away from theory here and take a look at data. And the best data going is what's called the Atlas of Economic Complexity, which is maintained by Harvard University. I think there's another university that maintains a similar service. And that uses the SITC classification of industries to look at the pattern of industries in, in, a, in various economies around the world. And if comparative advantage was correct, then what you'd find is economies with a specialization and part of the overall web of manufacturing would be more successful than those which had a broad spread and covered the entire web of manufacturing. And the, the data is in and the answer is out. And the answer is that the the economies which grew most rapidly and are most resilient are ones that produce a broad spectrum of industries, not specialising. But they would be the larger um, countries. So, well, they would be larger countries as well, wouldn't they? Because it's easier for yeah, them has, to have... Yeah, have to, you see, it's got to be a certain scale, definitely. But like countries over about the 40 million mark, which may, includes the UK and Germany, and Germany produces a far wider range of manufactured items than the UK does and has been a more vibrant economy over time. It's having its problems now, and having a bunch of auto liberals in charge doesn't help, um, but it's been more successful without, in, it's an anti-specialization case, empirically works better than an argument for specialization. Right, but I mean, looking at the scale of companies, uh, countries I should say, I mean, if everyone started putting up barriers, uh, if they started putting up tariffs, and we'll talk about quotas in just a second, because that's another way, of course, it's going to be the small countries who suffer, isn't it? Yeah, the small countries don't have the same capability to produce everything domestically. There's some things they've got to import. So their economies of scale become extremely important. And what they are and what they're exporting, they could find all of a sudden there's not demand for because they're too expensive now they've had the price put on them. So a small country that exports to the United States can't produce domestically and loses yeah. its export yeah. market. It's yeah. stuffed. So like the, the important thing, I think, is, is those economies of scale. And that was one of the major objectives for the, or one of the major reasons to form the EU in the first place. So you've got a continental scale mm. uh, economy, which can compete with the continental scale economy of America and equally now China. So Paul Krugman's been tweeting about this this week, and I know you're a great fan of Paul's. Um, oh, yeah. He says, yeah. you know, this whole thing might not cause too much damage to the U.S. GDP. Well, obviously, Donald Trump thinks it'll improve U.S. GDP. But he says the effect would be, the significant effect on all of this would be, and in effect, America would be withdrawing from the uh, from GATT, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariff. Uh, so we could see ourselves going back to life before GATT when... Well, the average tariff globally was 22% instead of what it is now, which is around 5%. Uh, so this could be the thin end of the wedge. But it sounds like what you're saying, well, you know, if that's the average tariff around the world, 22%, then that might be a good thing. And if you look back at those periods, the, the, the whole idea of it, everything neoclassical ar economists argue in favour of is about promoting the rate of economic growth. But of course, we now have the, the climate change issue, which makes that redundant. But if, that should mean that if your period of lower tariffs would associate with a period of higher aggregate economic growth. And that's just not true. The rate of growth was higher back in the 50s and 60s. And a large reason for it, apart from the issues of finance, which is yet, yet another issue where neoclassicals are clueless, um, was because the level of investment was so much greater. Right. Uh, we had a, you know, you, there was a very strong impetus to invest uh, and grow your economy that way rather than specialization. And specialization has been a dud. Yeah, and we just need to look, don't we? Whichever country we're in, we can point to what was made 
in our respective countries that just isn't made in our countries anymore because we've outsourced it to overseas because supposedly it was cheaper, but we're paying the consequence with uh, with lower growth and higher unemployment, I guess. Although, you know, but on that, yeah. on that argument... And lower skill. Yeah, but on that and argument, then, then, unemployment's then, then, never been lower. Yes, it has. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, if you go back to the 50s and, and late 60s in particular, the unemployment rate was lower than it is today. And that, and, and that's also, there's been so much data cooking uh, over the last 40 years and, you know, with, with statisticians being asked by economists to redefine things like unemployment uh, to bring the, in every single redefinition that's been done. And, and the, the main person who's done the research on this front is a guy called Peter Brain. Do not use his first initial. Uh, Peter Brain, uh, used for the Australian Research Group. I've forgotten its exact title now. The National Institute for Economic and Social Research, I think it was the was his group. And uh, when you look through all the redefinitions which were done, I think through the International Labor Office, every last redefinition reduced the recorded level of unemployment. So the further, he, he, the 1974 is the cutoff date. Because that was the, the end of the, the pre-neoliberal period of uh of of uh, industrial policy and uh and neoclassicals not being in charge and since then uh, we've had higher unemployment and they've redefined it in such a way to make it look lower than it would be if you used the definition from the 50s so it's 60s. interesting donald trump is advocating this perhaps america needs it less than many other parts of the world you can see why he is because he's worried about the u.s trade deficit obviously because they've got imports of about four trillion and exports of three trillion so they've got a one trillion dollar one trillion dollar trade deficit which is huge and it's been getting worse but it's not been a problem for them has it i mean the economy continues to grow they seem to have got inflation under control now you know everyone there is talking soft landing as though america is going to recover more than uh, you know more easily than anybody else even though they've got supposedly this, uh, you know, this noose around their neck in the form of one trillion dollars in, uh, in 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 a trade deficit, but they seem to get by with it. Well, one reason because they, they're so big. No, because because they're the international reserve currency. This is again right. another yeah. stupid piece of policy um, coming out of America in, in the Bretton Woods period, uh, because you know, what Keynes wanted was a, an international currency designed specifically for trade, the bank or. And the Americans want right. the so, American so long as dollar. there's still demand, for sure, and we've talked about that. So, so long as there's still demand for the U.S. dollar, uh, then that's going to prop up the economy. You're saying it doesn't it's, matter. It's what, going to prop up the cost. The, it's going to make the dollar more expensive, and that's and that's going to hamper its manufacturing. So this was this was the, you know, America shooting itself in the foot to show what a great power it was. Um, right, but it makes imports cheaper. So it, you know, so it's yeah. And so, that, therefore, the argument manufacturing gets outsourced, and, and that again is one of the factors leading to the to the Rust Belt phenomenon in America. So, what does it do then if they if if he starts to impose these tariffs and say they start at ten percent and they rise until they become effective? So you start to get more manufacturing happening uh, on the on the domestic side, so they're importing less. What impact does that have? And, and if at the same time, we're seeing less being traded in in U.S. dollars because BRICS gets their act together with you know alternative currencies. What does that mean ultimately then for, for, for the US dollar? And I mean, are we, are we going to find any way that it becomes more effective for America to produce domestically because of that advantage of the strong US dollar starts to disappear? Well, time will tell. I'm, I'm really I'm not, a, I'm not going to make a punt there because, and the, again, with global warming 
and the impact of climate change, I think we're going to find we're going to be forced to do much more domestic manufacturing, whether we want to do it or not. And I think that's that's probably mm. more important. The, the I think the days of globalization are over, and uh, you know Trump putting forward a ten percent tariff is the sort of thing Trump would do. Uh, but it it may be something that America will have to have to manage produce more domestically because um, global warming and the the end of you know the capacity to ship goods from one side of the planet to the other and the fragility of supply chains we're going to have is going to make it necessary to produce as much as you can do you think he'll do economy. it i think he will and does that mean i mean assuming he becomes president which um scarily i think he will be as well I, um, that means the end of the the, the era of free trade, really, yep. doesn't it? We're, yep. we're, we're, yep. we're back to pre-GATT days. Yep. I'm, I'm looking around to see if I can find any where my crocodile tears are. I've, <laughs> I've run out. Doesn't worry you at all. What does worry me, though, is that it leaves itself open to corruption, doesn't it? So you can just see that he goes, it's 10%. Well, now 10% works so well, I'm going to make it 20%. And then there will be certain industries, because there's always exemptions, there'll be certain industries, and we may find that some of those industries or companies are companies that just happen to trade quite well with Trump businesses that yeah. he's operating yeah. on the I side. Mean, there, there's no, I mean, it's no, open to massive corruption. There's no doubt there's a possibility for that. I mean, again, that's where America's potential penchant for corruption uh, compared to the behavior in Japan and Korea and Singapore and places like that uh, could lead it you know, with, with, when they've got a Confucian ethos that makes that uh, uh, on the nose. In America, it's uh, it's how you do business. Mm. So it could well lead to those political corruption issues. Right. So we're getting to, we are going to trading blocks, aren't we? So the idea of, uh, again, maybe Britain shouldn't have left Europe because Europe's one trading block. Maybe they'll start to increase the tariffs, which they have, of course. Uh, and it's not, and, and you know, and, you know, other countries will join trading blocks as well. Perhaps you don't want to be in the same trading block as America because they're, you know, because the whole idea is to, to establish something that can compete against the might of uh, of, of America. So Australia shouldn't get too excited about joining up with a, a, America for anything. Well, nobody should get too excited about joining up with America for anything. You, sh- you should really be looking for countries that are close to you that can produce stuff that you can't produce easily so that you, in effect, replicate a domestic market in a, in a geographically constrained area. That's going to be the key, isn't it? And then you stick, if you're going to be in this new world, you, you stick up uh, tariffs within your trading zone. That's the way forwards. I think that's, for once, a summary that I can agree with. Wow. Look at that. Well, we should leave. We should get out while we can. Uh, I think we should, yeah. All right. We'll talk to you again in Hungary again uh, next week. Good to talk, Steve. Good on, mate. I wonder how he's going with the uh, goulash and the stuffed cabbage for dinner every night and that bean soup they've got. Actually, it's not bad, Hungarian food. Are they uh, chicken paprikash? One of my favourite dishes I just discovered is Hungarian. So there we are. It's not all bad. Beautiful city as well, Budapest. So I'm sure he's having a fantastic time. Uh, back again next week then for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby with Steve Keen. We'll see you next week. The Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.